Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Dope Black Podcast. Good afternoon, or good morning, or good evening, depending on what time you're listening to this. Um, my name is Umar, and this is the Dope Black Dads podcast. Today, we're going to be speaking with Dakota J. Erby, who is an associate professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago in the Department of Educational Policy Studies. He's the author of Stuck Improving, which is Racial Equality and School Leadership, which is a book that has been published recently, and it was published in September of last year, and you can buy it at all good bookstores all around the world. Um, And we're going to be speaking about the racial systems and how it's kind of working in schools and, and kind of the work that Dakota and his colleagues have been doing to kind of try and change the narrative and try to change a lot of the issues that are being faced in schools, especially when we're dealing with racism. Obviously, in the last few years, we've had numerous issues and the, the, the killing of George Floyd really brought to prominence a lot of the issues with regards to racism that people are facing um, within the workplace, but also in within schools as well. I know here in the UK, there's been lots of debate and discussion around changing the way that race is talked about within schools um, because there's a lot of controversy regarding the fact that you know we're talking about it in such a way to kind of eradicate history but actually the whole issue is not to eradicate history but to learn from it so wanted to um obviously welcome dakota to the to the podcast welcome how are you sir thank you so much i'm doing well i appreciate the invitation to to be on the podcast and i love the love the podcast and uh, especially the name. So thank you. Thank you. No, well, well we appreciate you uh, taking some time out this morning. Uh, well, it's morning for you over in Chicago. It's afternoon for me here in the UK. Um, but yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time out. And I think it's, as I said in the intro, that it is quite an important topic um, that we're discussing. So uh, for the benefit of our listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about your background um, in education and how you kind of got to where you are today? Yeah, great. Thank you. So again, my name is Dakota Irby. Um, a lot of people call me DJ. That's why I have the J in my name. Um, I grew up in South Carolina um, and in a very kind of uh, different region, a small kind of rural area, um, small town feel, and uh, now mm-hmm. I live in Chicago. The journey that brought me to Chicago is one with a lot of twists and turns. Um, I grew up with my mom and my sisters in South Carolina. Um, I attended College of Charleston in South Carolina and then eventually found my way to Philadelphia. 
when I was in Philadelphia, um, I volunteered to, um, I'm, I'm going to date myself, I volunteered to teach young people how to use email and how to use Microsoft Word. And uh, in that process of volunteering with young people, that was my first time really being in an educational setting. At the mm-hmm. time, I was working at the mall at Sunglass Hut and just felt like I needed to do something more meaningful um, mm-hmm. and found that I really loved it. I enjoyed working with young people. Um, I got them. We kind of clicked. And that's what kind of led me into education. I started working with um, youth who have been involved in the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. uh, as well as working with youth who are pretty much kind of like on the margins of society. Um, mm-hmm. students who lived in like you know public housing and that sort of thing and I uh, just really enjoyed my time working with them that led me to pursue a PhD in urban education and what I found when I was working with those young people was that um, even when they did everything that they needed to do their families did mm-hmm. everything they needed to do you know they stayed in school they you know got as good good of grades as they could get stayed out of trouble had supportive families who were supportive, but oftentimes were low income or poor. Um, mm-hmm. But they did everything that they were told to do. Um, and the system still didn't work out for them. Uh, mm-hmm. Oftentimes they still weren't able to go to college. So I saw this repeated process of students following all of the steps of the so-called uh, that are required to achieve mm-hmm. the so-called American dream. And it still did not work out the way that they hoped. And a lot of their kind of like hopes and dreams were, were dashed. So um, that's what led me to become interested in understanding educational systems in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And I pursued my Ph.D. at Temple University. And uh, then I worked at a couple universities. And in 2015, I joined the University of Illinois at Chicago's Department of Educational Policy Studies. Mm -hmm. That brings me to where I am today. Well, I mean, it sounds like you've you've obviously you've taken something that was a passion uh, to begin with, obviously, in terms of helping children and young people to navigate the education system and and to get themselves into a position where they could better themselves to actually being in a point where you realize, okay, so we we're encouraging people to do all of this, but they achieve all of the goals that they're meant to achieve. But when they come out the other end of it, suddenly they're stuck. So when you've gone through that process over the last few years and then you've realized that you know these children and young people are now stuck what then did you kind of feel needed to you needed to do to kind of try and challenge this or understand a bit more as to why this is yeah well i think the the big um kind of awakening for me which i already i knew this in theory but mm. to see it play out like with so many young people and so many families was uh really like eye-opening for me but really what I understood is that uh, individual and even collective effort is important Mm. but um, even with the tremendous amount of effort individual you know effort that people put forward following steps taking all the steps that are that people say are required if the system is not set up and established to help you win to ensure your success it's very difficult you're almost swimming against the tide Right. Mm-hmm. So you can be paddling and trying to go against that tide, but you're still going upriver. It's going to be a Herculean effort. And so mm-hmm. what I realized is that if the system is working against people, then it's not that we need to. It, we do need to encourage people to put forth effort to try all those sorts of things. But mm-hmm. we also and need to be uh, as interested and as committed to trying to change the actual system itself. So in other words, to redirect the river. 
so that as people are paddling, they have the river, they have the flow behind them as opposed to yeah. them. And so that's really what helped me become interested in understanding organizations. Mm-hmm. And my book, Stuck Improving, really focuses on organizational change. My goal and my um, commitment as a scholar is to try to figure out how to change the systems so that the systems work um, in concert with all of the effort that people are putting in to actually improve their lives. Mm. So obviously within your book, there's a number of running themes um, within it. And I think one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what do you think it means for educators to study themselves, interrogate policies and reimagine practices with increasingly diverse uh, student populations that we're now seeing in suburban schools. I think not just in the US, but over here in the UK, you know, you are seeing a huge explosion of diversity. Um, so what do you think can be done to, to look at these things? Yeah, I mean, it's really, um, you know, uh, what, what what's required is that educators, people in positions of power, the people mm. whose behaviors and actions uphold whatever the system is, really begin to think about um, the system in a different way. Um, And Mm -hmm. so if we, because a lot of times what we see in education is everybody, uh, not everybody, but many people, educators, uh, even parents included, put a tremendous amount of pressure and emphasis on changing the students, the, you know, behaviors of parents, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, if we could change and rethink how the schools actually function to support parents and support students and support communities um we would you know be in a better position to make sure that all of those efforts that young people and families put into their education actually pay off i think one of the um the challenges with that though is that the vast majority of people who actually work in the education system have actually benefited from it and when Mm. you benefit from something and when it has worked well for you it's very mm-hmm. difficult to have um, to adopt a deep commitment and to develop a willingness to actually change the system that has worked for mm-hmm. you. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's the challenge. I even with my own children, you know, I'm always trying to be mindful of like, OK, you know, how much of, how much should I be balancing? Like, if you do this, you're going to do well because I did it and it worked out for me. Right. Mm. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work the same way for everyone else. Um, And so I think that the big challenge in terms of getting people to reflect and think about what they can do differently and to imagine differently is to let go of the narrative that the system works and instead Mm. shift the narrative from the system works to the system happened to work for me. Mm. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for everybody else. And if we could adopt that kind of perspective, then it will mm. open up our possibility to say, how can I make this work for people who aren't, who don't have the same experience that I have? So when you say experience, are we saying, or are you saying that obviously we're both black men? So are we saying that the experience is being a person of color in the school system? Or is it that um, your experience depends on your socioeconomic background, for example? You know, are you... Are, it, is your work suggesting that actually the school system itself is possibly, and you know, I'm just uh, throwing it out there, but there's possible institutional racism that exists within the school structures. And that's why, you know, some people can navigate that and get away from that and, and be successful, but others can't, uh, you know, no matter how hard they try, they, they're not going to be able to do that. So what would your, what was your take on that? 
Yeah, I think it's all the above, everything that you're saying. Um, the, these institutions um, favor and work for people who um, have power. Um, mm. So they work for white people. They work for people who have wealth, who have financial resources. Uh, in the United States, they work for people who live in more affluent neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these things, all of these kind of, uh, you know, all of these positions of power, all of these, uh, you know, you know, whiteness, class, gender, all of these things work um, in particular people's favor. And likewise, uh, you the system works against you. Um, when you're not any of those things, when you don't live in a particular affluent neighborhood, when you live in a poor community or poor neighborhood, or if you're black, or if you're, you know, a black woman, or if you're a black male, all of those things compound and intersect to put people at a marked disadvantage in comparison to, for example, you know, a white family who lives in an affluent neighborhood or area. The school systems work pretty well for them. Um, mm. And policymakers want those people in their schools, right? They want mm. affluent people in their schools. They feel that it makes their schools better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even if we think about um, not only education policy, but housing policy, like there's this assumption in the U.S. that housing policy uh, should focus on developing kind of like these mixed income, multi-income, multi-racial kind of communities. The assumption in that is, is that if poor people can be in close proximity to people who have more wealth that they're going to be better off. And maybe Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of merit to that in terms of like the networks and social relationships that form, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that this kind of uh, social class mixing is the panacea for poor people. The panacea to help poor people is to invest the educational, the workforce, you know, the the resources Mm -hmm. into people. So they're no longer poor. That's the Mm -hmm. solution. The solution to eliminating poverty is not to put people in poverty in close proximity with people in wealth. In fact, that oftentimes yeah. reinforced because it's like, how about you just come and work for me at my house and clean my house or something? The real solution is to actually make the kinds of investments into people that um, will allow them to be able to kind of flourish. And so mm. if we think about schools in the same way, um, we really need to think about wholesale change to how we're funding schools, to what resources are provided to schools. Like we could have policies where the best teachers go to and are encouraged and incentivized to teach the students who need it the most. Mm. And instead you get the, you know, teachers are incentivized to go to if they're the most talented teachers are often incentivized to go to and to remain at the schools where the families are affluent, the students are going to do well, regardless of whether that, you know, top tier teacher is there or not. Mm. So, I think, yeah. No, I was just going to say, I think it's interesting that you mentioned about the, um, you know, kind of the mixing, social economic mixing, because, you know, here in, in the UK, like, for example, in London, and I'm sure, well, I, I say that, I'm sure, but, you know, possibly you would have heard of what happened in Grenfell Tower um, a few years ago. So when the block of flats in West London uh, caught fire and several, you know, well, a lot of people sadly passed away in the, in that fire, and I think what's interesting about that particular area in London is that here you have on the one side of the road you've obviously got Grenfell Tower. Um, there's a lot of um, th- there's a lot of people who don't have the same level of um, income, you know, high levels of income in that area. 
but then you kind of cross the road and then suddenly you've got these massive mansions, million pound houses. And, you know, I can see the point that you're making that, you know, it's almost a suggestion. It's a bit of a fallacy to think that, okay, because I happen to live next to a near to a poor, sorry, next to a rich person, that their richness is going to rub off on me like some kind of magic dust that's going to suddenly be like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, I'm going to be rich as well. And actually, if you think about it, it could be more of a, disenchantment uh, towards them because they kind of feel like actually well I can never get to this point you know and this is kind of almost rubbing it rubbing it in my face because you know how am I meant to aspire to this just because that person happens to live next to me not saying by the same token that you know if you're living with people who are of the same kind of social economic background as you that you can't aspire but I do think it is a bit of a, a fallacy to to suggest you know, that by mixing people in that way that you're going to suddenly see uh, this change. And obviously, you know, history dictates that that hasn't really happened. And I'm not sure if there's anywhere in the world where they've tried that as an experiment and that's actually that's actually worked. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's interesting as well in terms of like the, the structures within the schools. What do you think needs to change then? Because there is an argument that can be made that actually, well, I can still be a poor black man or woman or person of color who comes from a low socioeconomic background but can still make it within that system you know a classic example your former president Barack Obama you know he didn't come from a, a rich family and he went and became you know president of the number one you know highest office in the land in the country some would say in the world um, so how do we kind of try and navigate all of that and you know how what can be done to kind of try and address those issues really yeah well you know uh i i think that part of it is um for me i think a a, a redistribution of like wealth resources and when i say wealth resources i'm not only talking about financial resources i'm talking about history right um knowledge um culture really amplifying and lifting up the cultural assets that exist amongst, you know, specifically since we're talking about black folks, black folks. Um, I mean, we also have to keep in mind that, uh, you know, Barack Obama learned a tremendous amount from living and working right alongside, you know, poor people and being an organizer, organizing poor people on the South side of Chicago. Um, mm. And so even if we think about the success of his, um, campaign, he used grassroots fundraising approaches, right? Mm-hmm. $25 per person. He didn't, you know, that's what really got him going. Um, so that particular approach to raising money um, mm-hmm. is an approach that, you know, we don't see like wealthy affluent people use. Like wealthy affluent people go find a friend or a few friends and that's how they get their money. That's how they get their campaign yeah. money. You know what I'm saying? True, true. So yeah, it's true. about the tradition of black people all over the globe, how we mm. make the how we make the uh the cookout happen or how we send such and such to college is we go and we say such and such is gonna go, we're gonna pray on such and such. Yeah, and, real talk. And it's gonna happen. All right. Yeah, and yeah. everybody like, yeah, it is gonna happen. And everybody dropped five dollars in the basket, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that, mm-hmm. that, that vote of confidence, that belief in our ability to persist and to thrive um, is what ends up kind of like moving us and kind of like carrying us forward. So mm-hmm. I think that the reason I wanted to mention that is that if we think about um, 
how we do things. There's this kind of, and I don't want to be essentialist, but there's this way of doing things mm. um, that black people, that poor people embrace and use and have used historically that gets us to another place. And that's a form of wealth. Mm. Um, and so when I'm talking about like the wealth and the assets that we bring, um, it will look very different, for example, uh, in schools if if you're in an affluent school and the way of making sure that everybody gets to go on a field trip or has a, a STEM kit to do their science projects is to go and, you know, the parents for the more affluent kids are going to be able to take care of it and, and afford it. Mm. There has to be different ways of thinking about how to ensure people have opportunities. Um, and so there's a way that we do it in our communities and schools don't necessarily do it that way. They say, here's a fee and everybody pays the same fee. Um, to have access to, you know, this STEM opportunity or this field trip and that sort of thing. Mm. So I think that I'm talking about this because it's really about a, 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 a pretty substantial reimagining mm-hmm. um, of how to make schools work for mm-hmm. black people. And we have in black institutions some uh, some some clues I think, yeah, it's interesting what you say about kind of the mentality that we have, you know, black community in terms of, you know, it is a community in terms of how we operate. And like you say, when, you know, when one person shows promise, we're kind of like, okay, let's pray on it. Let's contribute what we can. How do you think that, do you think that that kind of way of doing things could be implemented in schools? Or is it that schools are, I suppose in suburban schools, I can see the point that they are probably restricted with finances in terms of trying to ensure every student has the same opportunity. But for those that are in the affluent uh, schools, do you think that there's a responsibility for the schools to say, okay, well, we recognize that we've got some students who are not from an affluent background. So therefore, we'll either do this as a flat fee that everyone that we know can afford or the school will heavily subsidize in this in this case i mean what's your take on that yeah and schools do that right so um to be fair there are schools especially schools that have you know those resources they they absolutely do that and the schools that don't try to seek out grants and that sort of thing i think that um above and beyond the financial piece is kind of like it's almost the uh the cultural kind of like ethos or spirit of the place right Mm. um and so what i was trying to describe is really about kind of like the the spirit of abundance that we try to move within mm, and mm. thinking about organizations and how the culture of organizations and in particular the culture of schools, they're not places that really assume abundance and potential and mm. uh, ability for people to flourish and that sort of thing. And so mm. I, a lot of it has to do with how policies, how financial resources get distributed, how policies get get created and implemented um, what curriculum is taught and how people are interacting with the young people on an assumption that they can actually do something great, right? Mm-hmm. And that they already are great and that they bring something great and that mm. the goal and the objective of you being in this institution is for people to pull it out of you, right? To pull whatever mm. that greatness is out of you. And so that's how I kind of, I, so I don't think that schools operate that way. Right. Mm. Um, And so I think that part of the issue and part of the problem is that they don't. Whereas we know that like black communities and black institutions do operate on a different set of assumptions about our potential. Um, And part of racism is that 
you know, the, the one of the powers of racism is that the belief that black people don't have potential mm-hmm. is baked into the institutions and it's baked mm-hmm. into everything that we do. And so um, it's almost like, you know, there's certain people who show a particular kind of promise or potential can get the, you know, uh, the institutions and the people who uphold them will gravitate towards them. But there's not mm-hmm. this wholesale belief that people have potential in the same way, for example, that people believe about, you know, white children, like people mm. in the United States, you know, white children, you know, get treated as though like, you know, they have tremendous potential. <laughs> um, you know, uh, they don't get the, that's the default, right? They have to do something oftentimes egregious to be treated mm-hmm. as though they don't have potential and they don't have redemption. Right. And we see yeah. this in, for example, like you mentioned, uh, George Floyd, like that's a, that's a concrete example, right? Like mm. he's guilty. Um, he can't be up to any good. He can't. Mm-hmm. He, there, he can't be redeemed. So we have to stand. We have to kneel on him and hold him down for this mm. long because he's. There's nothing good that can come from this human being. Yeah. Whereas yeah. you know, white and the white people as a whole. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, get a totally different set of treatment. They get the benefit of the doubt that they're having a mental health crisis, that they yes. can be redeemed, right? Yes. So yes. The, all of these institutions, whether there's policing institutions and the criminal justice system, or whether it's schools treat um, black people uh, in a way that suggests that they don't have potential, redemptive quality, so on and so forth. And that's the default, unless somebody in that system happens to believe or think otherwise about you. And most black people can name who those people were in their schools. For me, <laughs> it was I had a teacher. I had a couple of teachers, Miss Barron, Miss Willoughby and my guidance counselor, Miss Gregory. Mm. Three people. Mm. Right? So most of the time when you ask a black person, who is the who are the three to five people yeah. in your educational career who believed in you? That's a shame that out of a whole educational career, most of us can name three to five if we can do that. 
Yeah, that's true. No, you're right. And I think um, you're right. There is that default position that's adopted when it comes to black people that, you know, we're not worthy. We're not on the same kind of level as everybody else. I mean, I come from a I come from an African background and I think it's interesting being a Nigerian born in born here in the UK. I think my parents came over with the mentality about, you know, the emphasis on education, education, education. So it was very much drummed into me from a very early age. And you can actually see, and when I reflect back on my school experiences myself, there was a difference between how African children were treated and how people from the Caribbean were treated. So I think there was more, um, you know, teachers almost took on a default that, okay, we're not going to go down the whole route of it's all black people, but actually we're just going to marginalize it. It's actually the Caribbeans. They're not interested in studying. They're not interested in doing this. That you know they want to do all the all the negative things that you can think of. But it's the African students who are the more studious ones who want to study, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think when you're having to deal with that from a very early age, I think you can take it all the way back to like preschool years. Because, you know, preschool teachers will have this con- this this concept of what a black person is. Therefore, you're almost doomed to fail right from the beginning when you enter an institutional, uh, it, an institute of education because your narrative has been set. And then we're spending time as black people trying to shatter that narrative in order to get ahead. So we're having to deal with a lot of the you know, the, the negativity, all the BS that comes along uh, with people's thoughts. And actually it's like, oh, you know what? It's great. I didn't realize, you know, as a black person, you'd be interested in um, studying the Second World War, for example, and looking at it from this perspective. Or, oh, you like science? Amazing. You know, I, I just thought you'd be into sports and, <laughs> and and all of that. So, you know, so I think it's, yeah, it, it's interesting that that happens. But I think from your perspective, obviously, you've been doing a lot of work on this and no doubt you work, you know, you do a lot of overtime dealing with this kind of stuff. So how do you kind of measure and interpret what small gains that you are getting from the work that you're doing from those that are struggling the most? Yeah, uh, a lot of it has to do with um, it's very difficult to say kind of like measurable. But um, so I'll. So I have another um, uh, a chapter that I wrote in a book called Dignity Affirming Education. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that particular book, in the, in the introduction chapter that I wrote, um, I write about the concept of dignity and this kind of idea of a deep sense of self. So one of the things that I look for is like, it's kind of, it's, it's very difficult to describe um, and probably even more difficult to measure, but it's something about the way that people carry themselves where you can kind of tell what they're about, right? And so sometimes even in the young people that I work with, and when I did this particular research project, um, I asked a lot of people like, how do you know when you're working with, and this was focused on males of color, black males and Latino males in the United States. And I would ask, how do you know when your work and the investments that you're making in terms of like putting this young person on a positive path for their life. Mm. How do you know when it's working? And they would say things like, it's difficult to measure, but I know it when I see it because they walk differently, they carry themselves in a kind of different way. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when they were describing it, they would kind of like put their shoulders up. The walk is a little bit more like I'm, you know, the walk is like I'm going somewhere. I'm not just meandering and wondering. And so they would say that they knew that their work had paid off when they could see these mm-hmm. small kind of like 
things being communicated about their sense of being and who they are in the world that the young people might not necessarily verbalize, but you can mm. see like how they're walking into that building. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like if you look at, um, you know, athletes or, you know, last night I was watching the U S open and I was looking at, you know, Serena Williams. Mm-hmm. And there was a time in the match where you could almost, she didn't have to say it. You could see when she was just like struggling, but then you can see when she was like, Oh, she's going to win now. Right. Because of how she was approaching the line to serve. And so there's these things that um, I think resonate with me and resonate with people in terms of just like how people are walking from point A to point B. Um, And I can even see it like I can see a young person, um, how they're walking into the room, how they're walking from, you know, here to the down, down the block. Right. It's a different kind of way of moving through the world that um, reflects a sense of self that um, in a sense of belief that I have a contribution to make to this world as a human being, whatever mm-hmm. that might be. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I, those yeah. are the kind of things that are very difficult to touch because, you know, when we start talking about these different modes of communication, we're moving outside of the kind of westernized paradigm of like how you perform on a math test, you know what I'm saying? Oh. Um, how you perform on a standardized test and that sort of thing. And we're thinking about people in a much more holistic way and what they're mm-hmm. communicating by how they move through the world. Those are the things that I really tend to look for. And I wish that mm-hmm. there was some kind of way to measure them. But I found that most educators um, and parents and adults, they know it when they see it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, for me, as a black man, like you, you, and obviously you as a black man as well, but I think the way that people move with a certain swagger, you can just tell straight off. And I think one of the things that I loved, you know, watching between 2008 and 2016, when Barack Obama was president, um, you know, just watching that swag. He just brought a next level swagger to the office of presidency. Like you've never seen a president. In fact, I don't think you've ever seen a world leader move in the way that he did. He just like, from the moment he would just, you know, put on his jacket, coming down Air Force One, just he, he owned every single room that he ever walked in. And I think, you know, I know there's a lot of controversies about, you know, what did he do in terms of helping black people and, and whatnot, but, and that's a whole different discussion we won't get into uh, today. But I think certainly on a, on a, on a kind of visual level, it showed this can be you. Like, you can do this. You know, I remember having conversations. In fact, it wasn't even... I remember it was watching um, I think Chris Rock, one of Chris Rock's specials in the early 2000s. Um, you know, Dave Chappelle. All of these comedians talk about how we'll never have a black president. And I think the closest I remember seeing um, a black president was the Chris Rock and uh, Bernie Grant film that they did. You know, that oh, was kind yeah, of yeah. a bit of a... <laughs> yeah, you know, that was great film. Hilarious. I know what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah. So I think for everyone, it's like, oh, cool. All right, yeah, well, this is as close as we're going to get to having a black president in, in, a, in a while. But actually, you know, fast forward less than 10 years and suddenly we've got a black president. And I think, is there something to be said, you know, waxing lyrical aside, but is there something to be said about the fact that schools as an institute, schools in the way that they move, education systems as they work, now the traditional education system there needs to be something that's built alongside of that or integrated within the 
existing establishment to be able to recognize some of these things. And I know like here in the UK, for example, there's been a lot of emphasis in terms of apprenticeships and trainees and kind of trying to move young people away from, you know, traditional do your maths, your science and your English and, you know, go to university, but actually think about getting apprenticeships from an early age. Do you think that more needs to be done alongside, you know, the existing education structures to be able to recognize that actually some young people are not suited for traditional education but if we have something else that's there that they can excel in they will excel and we can recognize that yeah yeah i think that there's multiple pathways and success is something that should be defined by the people who are experiencing it and, and i think too not just like this singular idea of success but that as you go through life you have hopefully successes right Um, at different stages in your life, like what it looks like to be successful at one stage may not be what success looks like or feels like at another stage. But I do think that that's um, really important. I think part of that is, you know, one of the things that I think is really important is to have young people having access to adults and institutions that give them a range of different opportunities to experience and try things. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say experience and try, I also mean, it's, you know, the opportunities to fail and bounce back. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I would love if schools had, you know, a broader range of things. So, for example, you know, um, you can try out music and if it don't work out mm-hmm. for you, it's not the end of the day. We trying it out. Try out mm-hmm. art, performing arts, try out, you know, sports. There's all of these different things that um the ability to try these things out is so closely tied to one's financial, you know, situation, mm-hmm. family income and that sort of thing. And so you get students that get like a wide range of opportunities to try whatever they want to try fencing and not be very good at it. And they yeah. say, OK, I'm not good at that or I'm not good at it, but I still want to do it. And so I think that all of these different sorts of things and mm-hmm. really starting to think about um Success not as only tied to the labor market, the labor market and work opportunities is one piece of it, but really having people be able to do things that help them thrive, flourish, be happy, um, have outlets so that they're mentally well and those sorts of things Mm. are really important. And I think one of the keys to being able to do that is to have people in schools that can relate to young people and children and teenagers and see their self in them. Mm. I think that one of the reasons that I was you know, successful. I don't know if this is something that you can replicate, but the sense of humor that the teenagers that I work with brought with Mm -hmm. them. And I was just like, this is hilarious. Like what they did is a problem, but I would have did the exact same thing if I, when I was in high school. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. thinking about those kind of things and being able to like take it seriously, but then go home and be able to laugh about it and be like, wow, this is, this is funny. This Mm -hmm. is a trip. Or this student said this and so I can say that, like, you know, when when I was when I was uh, working with, you know, high schoolers um, in Philadelphia, like, you know, I got cussed out pretty bad on occasion. You know what I'm saying? Like mm. somebody be like, get the F out of my face. Da, 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 you know what I'm saying? So I'm like, whoa. So I'm like, you know what I'm saying? Are you done? You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. So mm-hmm. let's get back to this work. But my thing is, is that I would go home. I would tell somebody and I'd be like, the way that this student put these words together to cuss me out was brilliant, mm. right? The delivery was brilliant. <laughs> like everything about it was brilliant. Like 
this person could go and be a stand-up or mm. an orator or, you know, the challenge now is to take those, the, your, really your mastery of the spoken word and be able to take that mastery of a spoken word and translate it into multiple different mediums. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, yeah, and so absolutely. I would take that kind of stuff like, okay, like you're done. All right. <laughs> you know, but I never looked at them as someone who like, all they know is cuss words. Right. Mm. I would think about them as this person has a really, really special way of using cuss words because everybody can use the cuss words. But this student, this young person knows how to use them in a really special way, which Mm. to me signals that you have a gift with words and that when you speak, you have a particular kind of presence. And so now my responsibility is not to say uh, my responsibility and commitment is to helping you be more expansive in the words that you use. Mm. how you use them xyz so you can find your way into different doors and find different avenues for yourself yeah but i can't do that if i think this child is broken and unredeemable because they cuss is that to do i mean i completely hear what you're saying because i think because i'm a lawyer by trade but before i was a lawyer i was working in the youth sector so i worked with young people similar to what you did and i recognize similar to what you're saying that there are some young people who, yeah, if you put them in the traditional s- system, they would get chewed up straight away because it's like, you're cussing, you're, you know, we're not seeing the worth. But actually, when you're looking at it from a completely different angle, like what you did, which is to say, actually, okay, yeah, I need to tell them off, of course, because, you know, that kind of behavior is not acceptable. But there is a gift there because of what they're able to do and it, you know and, and and again let me be very clear about what i'm about to say next I'm, I'm not condoning drug dealing or drug use in any way shape or form that's not where that's not what i'm about to, to say but i think i've had this discussion loads of times with people like friends of mine where you will see young people who are dealing drugs you know it's it's facts it happens um and there's almost this is there's this entrepreneurial spirit about them the way that they kind of organize themselves the way that you know they are dealing in 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 whatever they do so it's kind of like saying well okay yeah obviously that what they're doing is bad and it's illegal but how can we harvest that skill set that they have and turn it into something that's quite positive and actually that can make a more meaningful positive contribution to society so with that said do you think therefore that there's scope or there's a need to perhaps for teachers to be more cognizant of those types of things and not looking at things from a traditional teacher's lens of if you cuss, if you swear, you're a bad person or, you know, if you're dealing drugs, you're, do, you're you know, you're a bad person, but actually trying to train teachers to look beyond that and actually saying, well, actually, yes, all these bad things are happening, but one, we need to understand why it's happening. Two, we need to understand where it's coming from. But three there is something there that we can work with and actually we shouldn't just be sending them off to another system that you know will have no interest in them and they may possibly end up in prison or in jail you know later on down the line but actually we can harness that so do you think there's scope for teachers to get that or do you think that there needs to be an overall kind of institutional change yeah well i mean i would love if teachers brought that with them um I think it's highly unlikely, but I think it would be, you know, I mean, people just don't have the tolerance for it, you know, um, 
I guess it depends too on your background and how you grew up. You know, I grew up with friends that would just cuss like sailors, you know what I mean? And I would yeah. cuss a lot too, you know what I mean? So I didn't think that, I didn't equate the language to, uh, the language used to lack of intelligence, right? Um, actually, I thought that, you know, a lot of people were highly intelligent, you know, um, and the same thing with, you know, uh, I, I tell this story. I had a student um, that just was such a memorable student. This guy, He was a real gift. And I always am curious about what he's up to and where he landed. But, um, you know, he was a street kid, you know, um, at the place that I'm talking about, like most of the kids were. It was a life skills center for children who had been incarcerated for various different reasons. Um, and so this was their step to return to this life skills center before they were allowed to go back into a traditional school setting. This was kind of like the, the intermediary space. So I would work with mm-hmm. them uh, and then they would kind of be like evaluated to see whether they could go back into kind of like a traditional school setting. It, and um, so, you know, and if they couldn't make it back into a school setting, they would get like a general equivalency degree, a GED in the United States, which is, you know, um, an equivalent yeah. means that doesn't have to go to, uh, you know, high school diploma. But, yeah, um, but I mean, you know, these students, you know, they had some some serious experiences. A lot of them kind of took care of themselves, lived on their own. And I remember I had this one particular student who was interested in, um, you know, he was a street. He was a street guy. And once I got him interested in understanding real estate, because we started talking about like all of the abandoned houses mm. that were in South Philly, mm. he was just like, yeah. And so I remember, keep in mind, this was real estate information wasn't as regular available, available mm. at the time. So I started bringing him newspapers, right? He started getting the newspapers. He started looking at the real estate. And it wasn't as easy just to find information at the time, but then we got online, started helping him understand how to do searches online. And I'm talking about, he went down, he would go down a rabbit hole, right? Now he didn't have the financial resources to actually purchase a building or anything, but his commitment to understanding the process, to understand the market, understanding real estate values, the return on investment, so on and so forth. Like he really went down a rabbit hole to where he would ask me like, yo, you bring the paper today because I need mm-hmm. to look at the paper to see what's available on the market this week. Mm-hmm. And so I can remember how interested and invested he was. And I could only think what he would be able to do if he had the people, the resources, the people, the networks, the financial resources to actually help him get into real estate. He would be a real estate mogul. I'm mm-hmm. 100% convinced that he had all of that potential but the system did not provide him with the resources to be able to do it. The main outlet that he had was me bringing him a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he would like talk to me and we would spend a lot of time. Like he always was really invested in wanting to talk about these sorts of things. So I think about him and I think about how many, his name was Curtis. I think about mm-hmm. how many Curtises there are yeah. who's right now. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are into a, more of a street life. Um, but if they had a different outlet and could see a different possibility and had somebody who could introduce them to a different segment of the economy, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like they will flourish. Um, yeah. And absolutely. So, you know, I think that those kind of things uh, are, those are the kind of stories and examples that come to mind. And if we had, uh, you know, teachers in schools that could see that and not only see it, but mm. the capacity and capability to actually nurture that thirst that he had, 
and that mm-hmm. thirst that people who are like Curtis have, I think that um, we in the United States, many of the black communities and black people wouldn't be in the situation they're in. But this goes back to where I started our conversation, mm. which is the system works just fine for the people who are in positions of power because they want the real estate. They don't want Curtis to have the real estate. You know what I mean? So that's the dilemma that we're in is that like when we think about like the real estate, people who have the positions of power, whether it's in the housing market or whether it's in the educational institution, the people in the positions of power, the system works just fine for them. And until it doesn't work for them, there's really not much of an incentive for them to do anything different. Mm. I think that is a perfect place to to end this today. I think you know there's you've dropped so many nuggets in 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 this conversation that we've had today and I just think it's so important the work that you're doing is so important because I think people have to understand the way that school systems work institutions generally how they work and kind of the way that they've been built in such a way that you know we are you know for for people like that look like us that sound like us it's not designed for us to kind of achieve and actually if we achieve within that system you know we've done a bloody good job of it but there's many 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 people that cannot achieve within that system no matter how hard they try so therefore it's important you know the work that you're doing is about trying to see how to change that and i think i want to i think there's a the phrase phraseology that you've used uh, in your book, which is struggle is necessary, progress is possible, equity is imperative. Yeah. And I think that is the absolute mantra that we need to live by in order to make sure that going forward, change happens in a lot of these institutions so that, you know, children, young people can grow up feeling like they have got hope and that it is possible for them to achieve what they want to achieve and not just kind of following a narrative that's been set by other people but actually forging their own paths and forging their own careers and how they want to go going forward so uh dj i just want to say thank you so much uh for coming on to the don't black tats podcast um and to everyone that's listened i hope you've you know really enjoyed the discussion that we've had i definitely would love to have you on again because i think there's a lot of stuff that we could really kind of go to town on Uh, yeah yeah absolutely but i i I like that and i think you know it's good because i want to leave the listeners wanting more and i think we definitely need to organize something in in the coming months to to kind of to go over other things as well so dj appreciate you thank you very much and respect and love the work that you're doing and you know look forward to hearing more about the successes that you're achieving um with the work that you're doing and to everyone that's been listening this has been the dope black dads podcast thank you very much and we'll catch you on the other side dope black podcast Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.